All right, so um, for this episode, there's a, there's a couple of things that uh, we wanted to cover, um, and they both feed into each other. Ba- basically, let's see, early in the week, I was injured, lower back injury, and there's some interesting things. Yeah, lower back pain. Lower back pain. <laughs> Difference between pain and injury, yeah, yeah. Slap myself. Um, so that's something that was an interesting way we're managing that, so that'd be good to talk about, and that's... That's led into, um, because it was around whether I should deadlift or not, um, that's led into, obviously, you saying that you have a lot of feedback on people seeing your athletes deadlifting big loads um, with rounded backs and what that means, uh, people basically saying there's a high risk of injury there and that's bad technique and all that stuff. So um, I thought in this podcast we could discuss basically the nature of lower back pain and talk about that deadlift technique and why that's bullshit basically uh yeah so um is it like we've had two things come up which is you had you had experienced a little bit of back pain went through went through a few things and you feel a little bit a little bit better so maybe let's address that as the example first so you messaged me about a little bit of back pain yeah so so just so everyone is a where what happened uh it was squat day you know what it wasn't squat day it what i was doing my um it, it was a squat technique work actually so um it was let's see i did it when basically i it was a, it was a pretty low load but basically it was um Normal speed eccentric, then five seconds sat in the hole, and then a, a normal speed concentric. Um, and what happened was, when I dropped into the hole, um, I felt a bit of a twinge. Now, I'd just done two sets of four-second eccentric, four-second concentric squats. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, it's hard to remember how it happened, but I feel like I went, I dropped into the hole on the, on the next lift pretty fast. But anyway, I felt a little bit of a twinge, um, either like either side of my spine on on, on the lower back, right down at the bottom. Um, I still managed to do the lift, and it was fine. Um, managed to do the rest of the session, but then the next day, um, completely kind of stiffened up, and it felt kind of like you know when you pinch a nerve or something like that. Anytime I turned it was an issue so so i obviously messaged you because the next day i was supposed to be doing heavy deadlifting mm-hmm. and in my head the the, the the classic kind of bro science uh theory is lower back pain deadlift don't do it mm-hmm. right because the deadlift causes lower back pain is what a lot of people think um and that's not true is it um, deadlifts can be used, and this is um, a little bit, to some people, a little bit weird or counterintuitive because we say we 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 generally not straight away, but in most cases, we treat dead, um, back pain with deadlifts. Right, and, and this, this is the mind blowing thing because I would have ordinarily completely avoided that session. Mm-hmm. I probably would have completely avoided doing anything for about a week. Or two until it felt better, until I felt zero pain, and then I would have gone back into it. What I actually found was, um, which I told you before, which blew my mind a little bit. Not only did I lift to full capacity, I I 
pushed my numbers. So I made progress that week. There was no pain whatsoever. And weirdly, after the session, my back felt fine. There are many perspectives to take on this. So when I say we treat back pain with deadlifts, normally I mean that in a sense where someone has actually caused an injury and then Mm. rehabilitate and return to lifting through deadlifts, usually, um, and through other exercises as well. Um, In your case, you had back pain from from where you moved and it's a pretty it, it is a little bit more common with with like doing poor squats or eccentrics the reason we put it in there is to teach you to be a little bit tighter so there's a momentary mm. loss of tightness all right you've aggravated or went through um spine movement or which mcgill puts it as micro movements of the spine yep which can cause aggravation of disc or sciatic nerve and Usually the response from the body is to spasm or tighten up. Mm. Um, now, in that case, usually the, the method is to look at um, their lifting technique and address that, which is essentially what you did. You focused on bracing a little bit better yep. and you were completely fine, right? Yeah, so a um, bit, ba- bit of background on me. When I first... Um, kind of reached out to you to help me, it was because I was unable to deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a significant history of no, what I now realize is deadlifting poorly, bad technique, and that resulting in consistent lower back and hamstring stiffness mm-hmm. um, and just, just constant pain, basically, to the point where I just didn't deadlift. Um, and I came to you and basically was like, how how do I fix that? And you did a 20-minute session with me on my technique, and I've been deadlifting ever since, and it's been awesome. So um, you already fixed those technique issues before. I just kind of was ultra-focused on them when I did my session because I was obviously aware, mm-hmm. you know, can't get this wrong. So it is – I think we need to narrow this conversation to looking at deadlift. um, back pain in the deadlift yep because back injury and rehabilitation from back injury or diagnosing uh, back injury compared to having back pain are two very very big topics and so um i think this conversation as i see is might be confusing between the two so when we start to discuss this or when we're discussing this now um we're going to talk about back pain yes not a back injury um and because the process to getting someone back to lifting and to deadlifting is very different that way than this approach. Now, when someone comes to me with back pain, right? I mean, there are a few tests. I test whether they have injuries or not. There's ways, simple tests, um, moving through flexion, extension, and adding load can mm. all help determine what kind of intolerances we have and then gives us a direction about what kind of injury we're dealing with based off the sensitivity of that of that movement and some of the symptoms and feelings and what, how they may feel. Um, so then the treatment for that would be different. Now, when we're looking at pain, if they pass all those tests and they have back pain, and most of the time people I say they have back pain, it, 90% of the time is to poor lifting. It's mechanical. Yep. Um, so if we talk about the topic on deadlift and, and back pain, and then also the rounded back issue, mm. which people 
um, again, is a co- same thing. It's a complicated. It's a complicated topic. There's, you know, a rounded back is is can be dangerous. You know, mm. it's to what degree and what part and how it's done. And so this is where you know the answer to to it is just it depends on what it depends on anatomy. It depends on the skill of the athlete. The many things, and we can discuss that. Yeah. So um, one thing I've noticed. Um, since we've started doing this, I when I see other people lifting, I pay a lot more attention to the mechanics because I'm obviously more knowledgeable there. Now, what I've seen from people lifting really, 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 like we're talking elite level deadlifts, okay? A lot of them round the back. Mm-hmm. A lot of them do it. And these people are shifting ridiculous amounts of weight and they're not getting injured. So what's the difference there? How come they're so, allowed to do that? Think of, um, here's a, is a great analogy from Stuart McGill, which is the spine specialist in, this, in the world. Yep. The greatest spine specialist in this world. And essentially look at, look at the spine as a bit like how a bridge is built. So you have the columns of the, of the bridge, all right? and then you have all the cables that support that column. Okay, think of the column as your spine. Okay, we they have to build the column so that the force along the column is equal on both sides. We have a compressive force. Yep. Okay, if we have it on a slight, you know, right angle, if we have a right angle on it, then we're clearly going to create a shear force on one side of the, on one side of the column. Okay, so you can think of this as a bit like the spine. When we applied load, which is the bridge is heavy, it's got to support the cars that are going across, um, we have to create a compressive com- compressive force. Now, this turns out that our spine handles these compressive forces better in flexion, meaning that a slight rounded spine. Now, that is the, again, I get the anatomical explanation that mm-hmm. we are in flexion, and flexion is generally considered what we would say um, rounded, but in this case, it's not. It's still neutral. Now we have a natural curvature of the spine. We generally start to slightly remove that curvature so that we create, so we're able to handle compressive forces. If we try to lift in our natural curvature of the spine, which is you can consider almost slight extension, yep, um, we will create a shear force on the spine. Okay, so meaning that one side of the spine is taking more load than the other. Right, and that, that that was that was my previous technique. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I'd ever heard once that the um, extension of the spine is the most stable. Like, I don't actually know where I heard that, mm. um, but I've heard it going around a little bit. Like, you know that that curve of the spine. It's a it's a range, so. There is a range of flexion and a range of extension that is mm. okay until someone gets super super elite. Then we generally find more and more perfection, but we still got to have that margin of movement mm. that the person m- may be able to tolerate. Um, so coming back to the analogy of the bridge is that we have we have to create a a, a position of the spine that handles compressive forces. The second part is that you can think of the guide wire, the guide wires of that bridge as our muscles. They mm. have to create equal tension 
across across the spine and they got to have tension if we don't have tension all right the movement of having the barbell and gravity and our body moving is going to cause the column to move out of place yeah so we use the muscles to create tension or the guy wires to create tension on all the reason now you can think of think of that as that there are guy wires across every vertebrae okay so we have all the intricate muscles the interspinale the multifidus muscle that are all the support mm. supporting structures of the spine so they support they support the spine in itself then you have the macro muscles the bigger muscles i guess i guess you can see the big guy wires like like the lat and mm. uh transverse abdominis and um even glutes play a big role in trying to trying to support that so you can think of the biggest one of the biggest supporters in that is actually i would say is both a the core as a whole in itself um, to create a stabilizing force across the lumbar and then you yep. have the lat which then creates the it creates the stabilizing force across the spine across the top of the spine so the lat uh, creates the continuity between the shoulder the shoulder joint and through to through to the hip as it, the lat connects to what's called the thracolumbar fascia in the spine which the force then can transfer more more force transfer more effectively across the spine across the fascia across through the spine and then through to the glutes which then allows a transfer of forces from the glutes to the bar and the bar to the glutes so you can think of it as a it's kind of like a it's like a big sling that comes from the shoulder to yep. the opposite side of the glute and so in all those factors when you put all those um, in, 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 into perspective, you end, you end up having a lumbar spine that is actually quite flat. And for some people, we can increase that range to be able to handle it. In, um, they may be able to handle those forces slightly better than slight flexion. Where flexion becomes bad is where we go through flexion movement, meaning that if we've created a position in the deadlift um, that is, say, within the neutral range, and then we deadlift, yep. And we go through movement under load, meaning that we start to increase the rain, increase flexion as we deadlift. That is dangerous. Okay, to handle load, we must have a rigid spine. Okay, it can be rounded if it's rigid to a degree and doesn't move. But if it moves, it's dangerous. Right. Okay. Um, okay. This is great. So, what you're saying is. As long as as long as that spine stays rigid throughout the, the the compound movement, okay, the role of the spine in the deadlift, and you would say the the squat is to be stable for the transfer of force, yes. right? That so that which is why obviously we put so much stock into bracing and creating that tension. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter, but like what position the spine is in isn't as relevant as whether the spine moves under load. Is that what you're saying? Say that again. So w- whether it's slightly flexed, slightly in extension, th- as long as it doesn't move with under load? In some, in some cases. Yeah, okay. Um, in some cases. So if you're new... Focus on trying to maintain uh, within a neutral range, yep. which is generally, you know, there's a range. So if it, if, it, if it generally looks looks the lumbar looks looks flat, we're generally in an okay 
okay position. If there's slight ex- yep. slight extension, it's fine. Generally, I avoid all flexion of the lumbar spine, even for the most advanced athlete. Now, this also comes down to mechanics. If they have a longer longer torso, we'll look at going through more thoracic flexion, which can handle flexion far better than the lumbar can. Mm, And we use that to basically reduce the moment arm or reduce the length of the torso so that the distance between the line of action, which is where the disc is the line that the bar travels and and that to the hip. Now, if their torso is too long, the center of mass is going to deviate forward. And so we can shorten that by, we can shorten that by um, reducing the moment by going through slight flexion and now that is actual that's the actual position so we can incre- we can't increase that slightly more than what we should but n- how bench press technique is taught is actually slight flexion of the thoracic thoracic spine right so that is protraction which means the you know pulling the shoulder forward and then going through depression which then contract helps contract the helps contract the lat and stabilize that force between yep. the shoulder and the glutes um, we don't handle that load very well in retraction okay because generally we just don't quite have enough strength so we utilize the passive forces um or the passive tension of the the body which is like your the which will be the fact lumbar fascia is one Mm. one part of it so that we utilize that to try and gain tension in that position which is far stronger we actually test you know there was research on how much pass comparing massive uh, passive tension and active tension in the bottom of the deadlift if 40% of the power is coming from passive passive tension or passive structures oh interesting um, and at the top is 100% active so to get the most out of the deadlift we need to be utilizing these passive structures which is um, you know the sh- you know, traction of the sh- shoulder so shoulder forward and down um, which is different than what everyone's taught which is shoulders back and down so I was going to say that. So um, the, the, the general one, uh, and this, this is where the lack of specificity to the movement really hurts people when you just go into, when you just have your standard kind of fitness trainer, your PT, um, the go-to position is extension of the spine mm-hmm. and shoulders back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that also makes sense to me into that is why you focus when you've coached me at the top of the deadlift that that's when you really have to work on the clench and pulling the shoulders down and 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 there's more this should be that should be all the time <laughs> but maybe that's something specific i worked on with you yeah yeah ba- basically i um at the top of my deadlift i had if i remember rightly i basically yanked back at the top I completely lost all my form when I got to the top of my deadlift because I was, yeah, my technique was fogged basically. Mm. But, um, all right, so let's go back to, so, so that, that explains why some of, if people watch some of your athletes doing heavy deadlifts, that, that there is a slight rounding of the lower back there. Mm-hmm. But the key point is, that that spine is completely stable and there's no movement there, therefore making it safe. If they have a torso length that ends up putting them more, more prone to mm. lumbar flexion, I'll try and put as much as that through the thoracic 
if their lumbar still goes into flexion, then we'll allow the knees to drive a little bit more forward. Mm. Now, this is, again, another um, controversial topic about, you know, knee position or shin position of the deadlift is that we well, want to try and keep it in as, uh, as close to vertical as the anatomy allows. But there will be knee knee flexion depending on the length of their femur and torso. Mm. Reason being is that that is the most efficient um, position to generate a vertical upward vertical upward force, and the best position that takes advantage of all the passive structures of the um, of the body, as well as the perfect length tension relationship of the hamstring. So it is the strongest possible position mm. but doesn't mean we can't all do it so the argument is is that people would say that it, you know it goes you you know you have to have knees over the bar it's like yeah some people do and some people get very very strong doing so but they're not going to be world-class deadlifters look at any world-class deadlifter they either inevitably end or start in a vertical shin position if you use eddie hall's deadlift for example the biggest deadlift in the world um, or even Hapthor, they initiate the lift off the floor in a vertical shin position. They may not start there during their prep, but many people don't. You know. Yeah, the, the, and this is the concept of the knees over toes uh, thing. I, that that is something that I've also noticed as well. If you if you actually look at the biggest lifts, even people who say they don't train for that technique to have the vertical shins when they're doing their biggest lifts that invariably their shins are almost vertical, right? Mm. Um, that, that, that's just the way it is. They just, they just w without training, revert to the most efficient way to lift the weight, which is how they're able to do it. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of arguments to it is that, you know, you got to have knees over toes and that the and that it's more of a coordinated movement of hip extension and knee extension. Mm. But I disagree. Okay, it's not a squat, it's a hinge. Right, okay. So this is an interesting point because this is something you told me when you were fixing my deadlift is that I was squatting the bar off the ground. Mm. And there's a difference between deadlifting and squatting the bar off the ground. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, pretty much. And it just doesn't hold up because it doesn't hold up to the science. So... The thing is, is that this is just how people have deadlifted for a long time and they've mm. stuck to the idea and just that, I guess, confirmation bias is that they'll find ways to make that ideal, that idea true. But the science both doesn't hold it, nor experimental or observationally um, doesn't hold up that we have to have the knees over the toes. It, it actually shows, both the science and observation shows that optimal, and that's the key word, optimal deadlift is, it's done in, in a vertical shin position. The changes in knee position or, or, or shin position is fine because like a lot of a lot of my lifters have to have the knees over their toes as mm. well. Um, but that's due to anatomy. So yep. when it comes to maximal deadlift, anatomy matters. It matters a lot. Um, and that determines what your technique's going to look like. You know, you can still gain advantage of all those passive passive structures and length tension and all of this stuff, you know if you have knees over the toes, because it just comes down to your your anatomy, the length of your torso, the length of your femur. They're the two main variables in in this equation. Cool. So, and, and that's, I mean, that, that's a theme that's ongoing and everything we talk about mm -hmm. is um, the role of a coach. It's not one, one size fits all. Everybody's different. Therefore, everybody's technique needs to be different. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so what about going back to treating back pain with the deadlift? So that you, from you, you're the first person I've heard that from. I, I, mean, I mean, to be fair, Dr. Lot said it. Everyone on this podcast would agree, but Dr. Lot said it as well. Um, why did my back pain, it's almost like me heavy deadlifting fixed my back pain. It's it's Um, weird. So for for you treating back pain with deadlift, isn't the same, isn't the same logic as I would normally would do. That just means you were lifting poorly before and you're lifting better now. Okay. (laughs) Um, so your issue was mechanical. Okay, mm. so you basically you're, you're you you said you focused on bracing, so that reduced the amount of shear forces you experience at the spine. Um, we ex- our center of mass resides around L four L five, which is generally where we we'll experience most of the shear shear forces. So that's where we have to, especially be extremely extremely tight, extremely rigid, so that those force don't turn into shear force across mm. across the vertebrae. Because if that happens, we are going to get movements, movement of movement of the vertebrae, which then is going to create either um, aggravation or some sort of damage to the disc over time, um, and that can also then cause some of the uh, sciatic pain that some people experience as well. However, you know you don't have passive damage; otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to do that. You have um, a mechanical issue, so. Treating treating pain happens in three three stages. There's there's um, addressing the passive damage mm. of the structure. Then there is then looking at the weak muscles that are supposed to do their job to support that passive weak structure. And then there is the uh, neurological, or which we could just call movement. Um, how on the macro scale the mecha- how the mechanics work. Mm. Okay, because you know the underlying the underlying foundation of mechanics is neurological so we kind of you know focus on neurological and mechanical together so your issue is just coming from the mechanical okay um you will also then have some sort of maybe muscular weakness but you don't have any passive trust you don't have any of the symptoms or signs of of actual back injury just Mm. that you're having pain compensation right and and i mean just for everybody listening, another thing that differentiates me to most of the people listening to this podcast, or, or if your coaches, the people you work with, my my deadlift wouldn't even qualify as a warm up for most of the athletes you work with. So I'm obviously at the low end of amateur, right? So it's different for me in practice than how you would apply all of this to mm-hmm. your athletes. So I think that's important to say. Like I'm one step away from general gym goer like i'm just starting the powerlifting journey Mm. um so when it comes to elite athletes obviously you go through a much different process right like it's much different um it's yes yes and no yeah like most the the methods the same across the board okay step it's the usually the individual's commitment then usually comes down to how different it's going to be and you know their goals may allow for more extreme approaches but essentially the method i apply is exactly the same i have to work within the limits that the individual gives me Mm. okay so you have various constraints we all do and 
Um, but I mean, a lot of people, a lot of athletes at the absolute top are going to remove as many constraints as possible so they yeah. can train. You know, you know, it is, it is, it is completely normal for a powerlifter to train fifteen to twenty hours a week, especially coming to coming to prep. And we got to have very little constraints. I'm talking about the people at the top. You know, mm. a lot of the people who I might give the same amount of volume to to a beginner will do it in forty five minutes. Um, but you want to take that you want to take you know that to hundreds of kilos then it's going to take longer yep you know um and then there's normally a lot of other things we're dealing with if you know more advanced more advanced we get but the process is always the same it really it rarely changes and that method we even with the deadlift and back pain it's the same the way you would approach that you approach me would be no different than another athlete approaches me and the questions and line of questioning I do and the way right. I test it is exactly the same. It doesn't change. Okay, so so one other thing um, that I'm interested in, in this. So I have quite a pronounced um, anterior pelvic tilt, right? Now, that and that means I naturally round the bottom of my back. Like, I've got a, if I stand up straight, I've got a bit of a significant round in the lower back. Mm. Um, naturally, does that make me more prone to those lower back injuries? Not at all. At all? Okay. Um, not at all. You just have, you know, again, you you train for your, you train what fits best your anatomy mm. and your your mechanics. Um, excessive, yeah, excessive movements of of the pelvis can cause uh, can cause pain, especially if we're going into outside the normal ranges that we may consider as safe. Yep. You know, people are going to have some anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. And if you go into posterior pelvic tilt, we have um, that is flexion, technically flexion of the spine. But if we still maintain a neutral position into 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 a pelvic tilt, then you know, generally it's still considered quite safe. Generally, you try to remove as much of the anterior pelvic tilt initially in the squat. But again, there is a range. It doesn't have to be doesn't have to be perfect. Mm. Um, as long as it's safe, the, the, the level of perfection we may take does depend on, on, on. I would say, I guess how strong they would start to want to be. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's relatively safe, but if I want someone with a four hundred kilo squat, you're not. If you watch them squat, they're not going to have any, any anterior, posterior pelvic tilt, and if they do, generally that may increase the risk of um, pain they may feel right so let's talk about the um just quickly talk about the the the, the different mentalities you would take to that client if you've got somebody who say they're fuck i don't know say they're squatting 250 Mm -hmm. right let's say a a male squatting 250 Mm -hmm. they come to you their goal is 400 I want to reach, you know, they're aiming for, we're talking thousand plus totals here. Um, Do you then put more work at the start into fixing those things in the beginning or do you just get them lifted as heavy as possible? Again, the method doesn't change Mm. at all. I'm always working to perfection from the start, (laughs) from day one. It's a perfection that you'll never attain, okay? And how much focus you put on that depends on their training phases. If they've worked with me from zero kilos to 250, they're already at a various certain level of skill or yep. um, 
And if they want to go to 400, that will just keep going. It doesn't change. You know, it's not you have a 350 kilo squat. It's like, oh, I, want, I like to make a difference to my squat now. It's like, no, for you to get there, you've had to work through to being, mm. per, being more and more perfect. Perfection being something unattainable, let's say. You know, um, very few people have an absolutely perfect squat. The more elite you get, though, the more perfect it does start to become because you're slowly working closer and closer to that end goal of perfection. Yeah. So that starts from day one. Okay. So basically, you give them, I, I train people to a level of, a level of, um, say, we call safety or functional yep. safety so that in that training phase, they're able to attain a certain level, certain level. And then once they have attained that certain level, we then, again, come to the next phase, pull back, create more efficiency, and then express that strength again. The problem is, is that if you sit there and try and be perfect all the time, you never get strong because getting strong is risky business. It's a yep. risky game. So you change, you, you improve the technique to a part where they're able to increase strength. Um, we increase that strength, pull back, increase it, increase that level of perfection more. I'm mm. saying it's going to be perfect. Okay. Increase that perfection more, so that we're able to tolerate the next increase on load. So, so, you, so you you basically consolidate the gains you've made in another phase where you work on the technique to deal with that new bar you've kind of pushed. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. And then sometimes, you know, and, and those phases have to get longer and longer. So if you try to keep them the same method, if they want to get up to, say, 300, you know, it's like going 300 yep. kilo plus squat, right? Those phases are going to have to be six, eight, eight, 12 months long, yep. where individual from a beginner probably can have those phases in eight, 12 week phases. Yep. And they start to go 12 to six week phases, and 12 to 16 to 20 week phases until when you get really elite, then, you know, in, in if you don't, and this is where they start not putting in the work, um, where I start seeing people getting strong and getting hurt, is because they're not putting in the work a year long for a year long, you know, mm. um, which is is what's required to make change at more advanced takes longer, you know, changes in skill and technique takes more work, um, um, and it's very slow, very incrementally. So you know, every session they're making a tiny, tiny adjustment towards greater and greater perfection. Yeah, and. You know, normally every cycle we have a very specific goal in the way the technique is going to develop. And so where I can just tell someone straight away and they make changes over a few sessions, you know, very quickly in like, you know, in say four weeks, they've attained a whole new skill mm. where an advanced athlete is going to take, take much, much longer. We're normally just trying to squeeze another millimeter more or change mm. in direction or increase range of motion or change slight that, you know, what position their finger is on the bar and relative to mm. the ring on the on the bar you know it's like it's just very 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 tiny tiny changes to greater perfection um and those acclimation of tiny changes um allow them to express more and more strength yep but no the method for someone who comes to me with a 250 kilo squat one to go to 400 nothing changes if i was if i was linearly working towards 400 there's no lazy way to get to 400 or advanced way there's only one way (laughs) you know right okay that that's an interesting point to make. Like if, if somebody's right, so you, you you don't not change the process because it's the best way to do it. You, it the, that's the only way to get there safely is basically what you're saying. Yeah, I mean there are there are there are a few. Again, the one there's always one. There's, there's, always, there's always yeah. There's always one percenters. Um, there's plenty of um, plenty of them, but not actually not really. You know, because most people I deal with aren't that one percent. Yeah. You know, but yes, some people can just just get there you know right okay so so just to sum up okay so firstly 
as always, I've uh, been reminded there there is a difference between pain and injury, mm-hmm. a significant difference between pain and injury. And when it comes to pain, that can mostly be mitigated by correct correcting technique and movements, um, which in my case is what I've done. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I originally did with my deadlift. As soon as I started doing it properly, magically pain disappears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is you you can't, broad stroke every movement with this is how it should be done Mm -hmm. because and obviously this applies directly to the rounding of the lower back in the deadlift or or any other movement for that point because as you've always said throughout every single one of these podcasts the best coaches basically coach based off the anatomy of the human being they're dealing with specifically it's all specific Mm -hmm. um you can't just say the deadlift shouldn't be done this way, the squat shouldn't be done that way. It depends on the human being doing the movement. Yeah. And um, I think one last point I want to put is that, uh, to finish this up, that my, uh, disclaimer, I'm not a physio. I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not an exercise physiologist. I'm a powerlifting coach yep. who has studied a lot. My field and expertise is mostly in biomechanics. Um, my anatomy is not perfect, but I do know a fair bit of anatomy and a fair bit of, and how that applies into biomechanics. So, you know, if there are things that aren't slightly perfect, you know, you know I mean, that's okay. I mean, let me know. But, um, cause I got pulled up on this a little bit, you know, <laughs> um, but, uh, essentially, you know, when we had that same discussion with, with the anatomy behind the foot, our conclusions were the same. We agreed, we disagreed on hardly anything. Yep. If not anything, you know, um, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the, this is probably a whole nother conversation we need to have another time. Um, I think, um, on another podcast. Um, but what you're saying there is it, uh, there's a whole discussion around the importance of coaches, um, learning and upskilling in areas related to their core function mm-hmm. um, and the other the other point I guess the point you're making there is you are a powerlifting coach your job is to get that athlete lifting the most they physically can at that moment at that time and you obviously rope in biomechanical principles into that that's not the same as being a specialist you know enough that you need to know to apply it to what you are trying to achieve Yep. Very, very, very multidisciplinary field yep. of research to about attain that high level of strength, and mm. a lot of that has to. I've had to research a lot on on injury management, simply because a lot of physios do a really piss poor job at handling athletes. Um, so there are very only specialized, mm. um, you know, specialized physios that who actually have learned to work with athletes are the only ones I can trust to get to do to do the job. I know enough to get people through 98% of issues yep. that occur from lifting. Um, and, but there are always a few percent where I cannot figure it out, you know, and that's right. when I refer, that's when I refer, refer off. Yeah. And, and, and obviously your, your, your circle of associates that you feed this information off, we are talking like, Dr. Locke and people like that who who are genuinely world-class specialists, which is important to make. I, I feel like there's another podcast here in um, 
for coaches, about coaches, about what you need to add to your Sto- wheelhouse. Yeah. So that's, I would say, people are going to understand what their scope of practice is. Y- yeah. You know, mine is to make people strong. Um, I And where it starts to move outside of that, I do make the client aware that they should maybe seek outside advice. Mm. A common one is actually like within nutrition. It yeah. is a yeah. common, common, you know, I'm not here to deal with people's eating disorder, though to to some to some degree we're going to have a form of disordered disordered eating. Yeah. If that affects it so much that you're unable to do a um, a diet effectively and requires counselling and specialist nutritional advice and interventions, that is not my field. Though I have done the research in it to be able to recognise those issues mm. and know when to refer off. Um, because it requires a level of attention that I can't, can't, can't give mm. unless, you know, you want to do two, three hours of work with me, which then obviously is expensive. Um, and then, but I'm not even the expert in that field either. So yep. it's best just referring, referring off again. It's not knowing just enough to get people strong. I know a lot in a lot of fields. You just got to know the limitations on, on where the limit, those limitations are for the athlete, regardless mm. of whether I know how to do it or not. I should be able to refer refer off. Cool. 